Hello, and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown, and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. Well, it's been a windy and wet few weeks, hasn't it, Chris, since our last podcast? It certainly has, after that chilly December, and um, yeah, it's, it's not very nice, and we've had rain after rain on very saturated soil as well, which is not good for our plants or our crops. On some really warm days, I was up mm. at the beehives the other day, because it was 12 degrees. Yes, yeah, unseasonally warm, isn't it? How, how many times do you get 12 degrees in the uh, sort of start of January? It should be three or four degrees from my memory. <laughs> Indeed, but anyway, yeah, I yeah. suppose well, that's the way things are at the moment, isn't it? it mm. Anyway, mm. so talking about um, nature and gardening, mm. who we got coming in? Who have we got on the podcast today, Chris? Right, Peter, we've got a bit of a treat today, actually. We've got uh, Charles Dowding. He's the leading champion of no-dig gardening. Mm, okay, now I've done a bit of research into mm, this. Mm-hmm. I'm quite interested to learn yeah. an awful lot more about this idea. No dig. No dig. It sounds, it sounds like it's made in heaven, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> every spring I get the rotavator out mm. and I generally spend about a day fighting with it, rotavating <laughs> the allotment. And I mean, it does a lovely job, but. Mm. Obviously, I'm always aware of all the worms and the mm. sort of wildlife in the ground. Um, and by all accounts, rotivating isn't the greatest for the no, worm count. Definitely, and for that mycorrhizal activity as well in the in those top few centimetres of growth of, of mm. the soil as well. And, of course, wet weather as well can't be good for the soil structure. No, so mm. hopefully yes. I'm going to learn today how Indeed. I can do absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, That's what I'm looking forward to, but I bet it won't be like that, will no, it? No, possibly not. He, I mean, Charles has got a huge following on his Instagram, and he's, he's very much out there uh, okay. for, for a gardener of uh, a few years. He's been actually giving, uh, he's been, well, he's, he's been born out of gardening in a way, 40 years of growing, uh, analysing, comparing and recommending varieties and he's been growing actually vegetables since the early 1980s yep um having gardened on four different locations and grown literally thousands of crops and uh, charles is actually revered in the world of veg growing even monty don yeah that monty don yeah uh, of gardeners world fame stated that uh, charles has become the guru of no dig gardening he's a real good grower organic and has, and has fabulous produce excellent well let's hear what he has to say let's do that so Charles, w- welcome to Diggit, and uh, where where do we find you this uh, rather grey uh, January day? I'm in South Somerset, near Castle Carey and Bruton. Oh, lovely. Obviously, looking at, at your amazing amount of work you, you've done over the years, probably the first question we would probably want to ask and to explain to our Diggit listeners is, where did your no-dig gardening adventure begin? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, I guess when I just left university, I, was, I I grew up on a dairy farm just near here, mm-hmm. I'm a Somerset man, and then um, got became a vegetarian actually when I was at university, and got got interested therefore in nutrition, and then from that got interested in how food was grown. Then I became an organic grower when I started market gardening in um, 1982, and I used the farm rotavator, mm-hmm. and then I thought, hang on a minute, maybe there's different ways to do this. And I'd done a bit of reading around, and no dig has been practiced. You know, it's got a bit of a pedigree, but a very, very um, unknown one. And I found people who'd been doing no dig and, and swore by it, and, and particularly commented on there being much less weeding to do. So I thought I'd give it a go. I, I made beds, though. I rotated an acre and a half. 
and shaped up beds by hand with a spade or a bed. That took a while. And once they were made, I didn't want to regulate again, so I thought I'll just leave them, and, and that was the beginning of my no <laughs> Mm-hmm. And you said for the total idiot like myself, Charles, um, no, you mentioned less weeding. Can you, yeah. Is it really as simple as it sounds? Well, you know, I, I almost hate to say it, but actually it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, it's why I noticed in gardening, well, actually in life as a whole, you know, uh, teachers and people who, who know a bit, you know, they they will tend to make it sound more complicated than perhaps it really is. And, and that sort of keeps them in a position of, of knowledge and power, if you like. Yep. And uh, there's actually a saying I really like, the difference between power and influence. And with power, the more you share, the less you have. And with influence, the more you share, the more you have. <laughs> so I'm, I'm always sharing. And, and, and I'm not afraid to say if things are simple, because I want my, my listeners um, students, whoever, to, to really understand what they're doing, and then they will be successful, and then they will they can teach other people. The, the essence of no dig is really simple. You leave soil alone, leave it undisturbed, that allows soil organisms which are already there to do their work, which is what they want to do, without being disturbed. And then you feed them. Uh, so when we talk about feeding the soil, you know, I, I think in, uh, one might in conventional horticulture say you feed the plants, you know, but, but it's more about feeding the soil is how I put it. And strictly speaking, that's feeding soil life or soil organisms. And then they get busier and multiply and that makes your soil more fertile, more aerated, more structured and, and more full of goodness that's available to plants because that is favouring the biology which helps to make nutrients and moisture more available. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really interesting... So, so I'll phone off now. I told you, I've explained no dig. <laughs> <Don't laughs> That's it, we can all go home now. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so do you think, Charles, that anybody, uh, you know, anyone can master your, your no dig principles? Is it, is, it, is it that straightforward? Yeah, exactly. That, that's the easy bit, if you like. Then the, the practical side of things does need a bit more explaining. Like, you know, how do you feed soil organisms? Well, usually with a mulch, and I, I recommend compost particularly because we're in a sluggy climate in the UK mostly. So compost being well decomposed doesn't offer hiding places for slugs, you know, the undecomposed lumps, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's how you get hold of enough compost, that kind of thing. Not not that. You, you don't need more compost for no dig compared to digging. It's just that it's, I think it's more visible. And it's, I emphasize it because it's just so brilliant. It's such a useful starting point. And it leads on to the less weeding that you mentioned because you, you end up with a surface mulch of compost. Even if it has weed seeds in, they're very easy to pull out because it's soft. And you, you create this weed-free surface, which is less work, but is also feeding your soil down below and you know kind of doing the work for you, if you like. So uh, at the beginning, there can be more work to get hold of enough compost to make a, a thin surface there. It doesn't have to be massive. It could be one or two inches. Uh, it's up to you how, how thick you make it. So you're saying you started with an acre and a half of land that you rotivated, and that's a reasonable size area, isn't it? Is that what sort of made you think about no-dig gardening and how do I get away with not having to weed such a vast area, or what what was the trigger for you to get into it? It was exactly that, actually, as it happened, uh, weeding, because Mm. I I didn't go to college. What I did to learn was I went around going on lots of farm walks in the spring and summer of 1982, 
looking at organic market gardens. That's what I wanted to do, organic. And everywhere I looked, they were just fighting the weeds. They were so overrun with weeds that they didn't, I thought, have time to really, you know, do the more constructive jobs of um, planting and picking stone kind of thing. Or the weeds were just getting ahead and they were losing crops. So I just felt, for me, that was number one priority. Yeah, I, I needed to be on top of the weeds. And so that certainly led me to no dig. Um, and mulching, I used quite a bit of hay and straw, actually, which I wouldn't do now, but that was all I had at the time. Yeah. Um, I didn't have access to um, compost for mulching initially. And then I did find quite a few slugs uh, harboring, um, you know, hiding under the hay and straw. So, you know, I, I was learning all the time. I've, I've tried a lot of things over the years, and the the, the practicalities that I teach now are, are fine-tuned over all that period of time into what, you know, the simplest, easiest, quickest, most effective and efficient way of working, which you can scale down and up, actually. You know, you can make one bed, you can make 50 beds. It's the same principle. It just gets a bit more, um, a bit different when you, you go beyond maybe an acre um, of cropping, uh, you know, talking about reducing vegetables, that kind of thing. And flowers, actually. There's a lot of no-dig flower farmers now on mm. quite big areas of ground. So, Charles, so, so somebody with, say, an, an average garden, you know, or a new, a new gardener coming into, mm. into, into, into horticulture, um, what's the practicalities of the, of the size of the the bed, the width of the bed for, for no dig? Do you have any sort of formula which well, tends it, to work? It, yeah, it's quite open, actually. The, the one beautiful thing about a no dig bed is that you can walk on it if you, mm. if you need to. It's Because you haven't disturbed the structure through any kind of digging or cultivation. The soil stays firm underneath your um, surface layer of compost. You know, firm as opposed to compact. And then those two conditions are very different. So the firm soil, which is nonetheless open, it's got a lattice structure, a matrix of holes uh, where roots can travel and soil organisms burrow through all the time. Uh, but that firm soil can take your weight if need be. So if you want a wider bed, it's not the end of the world, you know, because you can put your foot on or even walk on it to reach the middle. So which means you can tailor your bed width to fit your plot size, mm -hmm. or have or have variable bed width. But I would recommend that. The, the size I find most useful is, is four foot, 1.2 meter wide, and any length you like. Um, having said that, I would recommend shorter, smaller beds, uh, as in less long. So say one point, I find beds of 1.2 meter wide, two meters long, that's about four by six and a half feet, really handy, because they're just nice units for planting up that bed with, one, say, broccoli or onions or carrots, whatever it might be. You've got a little block that you can cover with a fleece or mesh if you want to, that kind of thing. Uh, but it's not huge and it's not massive and it's, I'm not going to overwhelm you <laughs> um, amount to look after or also to harvest. Okay. And uh, with your sort of no-dig philosophy and tending uh, way of gardening, have you ever sort of done a worm count or an animal count <laughs> in, the, in the soil to see if it makes a big difference? Interesting question. Yeah, well, the problem is I don't really want to go digging a hole. And <laughs> I know, I know, I'm joking a bit. I, I can see what you mean. That would be interesting. I'll tell you what I do, though, is I do, I do comparison beds. So I've got two different trials going on here. One is comparing a dug bed, which I dig every December and incorporate the compost, with a no-dig bed where I put the same amount of compost simply on top. Yep. So already I say 
a couple of hours. Each bed is 1.5 by 5 metres, about 5 feet by 16. Okay. And then both beds are cropped the same vegetables uh, right the way through the season, pick, pick at the same time, water the same amount, and compare the crops. And what, what I noticed, slightly different answer to what you might have expected, but when I was digging the, the dug bed for the 11th time this December, um, there were a lot of worms. <laughs> and I'd be very surprised if there weren't a lot in the no-dig bed. I just don't want to dig a hole. <laughs> you know, we do see quite a few. Um, you know, there's no doubt they're there because we see the worm cast on top as well. But generally speaking, you know, I was thinking, God, this is actually pretty impressive. I'm finding a lot of worms in soil I've been digging. And that is because I'm putting on a reasonable amount of compost. I'm putting on one inch every year. Yeah. And that's measured after the rain has settled it down. So it's not the fluffy. Um, I used to say two inches, but that wasn't accurate, really, because I now count it as the settled depth, if you like. You know, yeah, yeah once the year's gone out of it a bit. Yeah, so, um, you know, we're putting on that much compost, which for, for a one, 1. 1.5 by 5 metre bed, that was two big wheelbarrows. But that, for that size of bed, that is giving 100 kilos a year of vegetables. Wow. Actually, last year it was 113 uh, from that one bed, and that included like 8 kilos of onions, 13 kilos of potatoes, 10 kilos of lettuce, uh, 8 kilos of beetroot, and so on. You know, a bit of everything. And that... I use that as an example, actually, to encourage people. You know, if, if any of your listeners have, have not got a huge garden, um, you know, you can, with one bed or just two, whatever, you know, small area, you can do a lot of vegetables and, and keep cropping. That's another nice thing. It's a big advantage with no dig because you haven't got soil preparation. So you can be, say, um, what I do with onions, I have two rows of onions I grow across the bed. And they're maturing in July, not ready to harvest, say, till early August. But in early July, I pop kale plants, transplants, between that, the two rows of onions. And the kale gets established while the onions are finishing. So then when we harvest the onions, you've already got kale. You know, it's done the hard yards, if you like. It's got its roots down. And within a month, you can be picking kale. And only a month after you pick the onions. So you're doing those kinds of overlaps is a really nice um, bonus of, of no dig and, and just having ground ready at any time um, to pop in new plants. And I keep succeeding. I really like the phrase succeeding with succession. So that's, <laughs> that's going on all through the summer, keeping the ground full. Uh, I found that rotation is less important with no dig when the soil is really healthy and well fed. Um, I've got a trial area where I'm, last year we harvested potatoes in July for the eighth successive year in the same soil. Oh. And actually, last year's harvest was the best ever. And that's also with keeping my own potatoes for seed. So, you know, I'm kind of not deliberately breaking rules, but I'm certainly stretching the boundaries and finding some really nice things. Mainly, I would say, as a result of having soils in really healthy condition. Yeah, I mean, so it, you know, they always say, isn't it, you know, a good, a healthy soil, you know, reaps benefits, doesn't it? And I've got, <laughs> yes, yeah. and and that lovely old saying. You 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 must have heard it. You know, oh, the answer lies in the soil. Most <laughs> <laughs> definitely does. And I think, yeah, you, the idea of sort of intercropping and sort of successional yeah. planting is something which you know, for new gardeners, is is a, is a whole new world of terminology. But actually, you know, practicality is you're using your soil more effectively. You're getting more crop for. Well, yeah. Crop. And if, mm-hmm. if you look at nature, it's, it's, you know, a lot of it's about copying nature, but obviously adapting it to vegetable growing in this case. But it's how nature does it all the time. You know, mm-hmm. you, you see a plant maturing, there's new seedlings that have germinated underneath. 
And before you know it, you know, we call them weeds and all this. <laughs> they, they've taken over. So it's, it's that overlap is, is happening continually, yeah. And, and copying those principles and, and working them into a fresh garden is fascinating, actually. I really enjoy that. So, Charles, on the on, on basically starting your, your no-dig garden, um, could you sort of break it down into sort of the, the, the sort of three sort of phases, which might make it easy for our listeners to yeah. to understand? Would... Yeah, absolutely. And because there's one thing I was realizing I hadn't mentioned, which is um, pathways mm. <clears throat> between beds, because that's a very important part that often doesn't get mentioned. And what I recommend is, with particularly with vegetables, which are very hungry, demanding plants, um, that you keep a path, any path next to a bed clear of weeds and that means the soil is um, available both in moisture and food for vegetables close to the edge to root into and they can do that because I recommend not having wooden sides I've got here a third of an acre of crop ground with no wooden sides on my beds and that means that my pathways which are 40 centimeters 16 inches wide for the 1.2 meter or four foot beds uh, that's a nice matching measurement. The pathways are not too wide, but it's enough space to comfortably walk between, push a wheelbarrow between. So if you're starting out, you know, think in those terms how you're going to set up your beds and paths, where you're going to, how you're going to run your beds, uh, which orientation. Um, it's often said that they must run north-south, <laughs> uh, which makes sense if all you're growing is, say, runner beans, sweet corn, and tall tomatoes because they're shading plants. But most vegetables actually grow very low to the ground. So you don't have to have them north-south. So for me, the main consideration is where you enter your plot, if you like, you know, where you've got access to your area and you want the pathways running away from that. It might be a concrete path or whatever. And so, you know, that will govern where you put them. And one more is slope, actually, because, uh, again, contrary to what's often said, I, I find it best to run beds up and down a slope, not across it, because then if you try and run beds across a even a moderate slope, you, you, the compost and um, water you apply to the surface of your bed will tend to run down the bed and into the path below it because the bed itself is on a slope, unless you terrace your bed, which is a lot of work. And so it, I found um, in my previous garden I had quite a slope, maybe 10 degrees, and I'd run the beds up and down. And that way any compost I put on would run down along the top of the bed and not into the path below because the bed surface was level. I hope that makes sense. I'm sure anyone with a slope could get the sense of that. Um, so little things like that, you know, can make quite a difference. Have a, have a think before you rush in and, and just plonk a bit of compost on the ground. You know, how are you going to set it up? Um, lay out of beds and paths. And don't, don't if, if you're a beginner at this, don't take in too big an area. Just, you know, one or two beds, like I've mentioned, you can get a lot of food and you'll, you'll enjoy it much more if you, if you start small and you kind of stay in control and not get overwhelmed. I often feel with allotments, you know, that sometimes you'll get people new to it being given a huge, great space. I mean, what are they going to do with that? And then they get a bit overwhelmed with weeds because they can't quite manage it all. And, and, that, and that can be very disheartening. So if, if any of you got, you know, have got access to a big allotment space, then think about sharing it. You know, you'll you, you have more fun and, and doing a smaller area can, can actually give you just as much in the end. Um, with, with the beds that you make, and you'll put some compost on the ground, um, if there's a lot of weeds, some cardboard on the weeds really helps in just that initial stage. You simply lay any brown, preferably thick cardboard, like, uh, you know, it could be Amazon boxes, <laughs> whatever, 
Uh, make sure you overlap the edges. Uh, the idea is to exclude light from what's currently growing there, what we call weeds, because uh, you don't want them growing under your bed and then or through. And put the cardboard, then the compost on top of that. And if it's very dry weather, which it's not at the moment, you wouldn't need to do it, but if it was spring, give a bit of water to the cardboard, but normally we don't do that. And yeah, you're ready to go then. If it's if the compost you've managed to get hold of is um, reasonably well decomposed, you know, you can make a bed like this and plant into it on the same day. But quite often the compost sellers will sell you compost that's not really mature, might look more mature than it is. And so it's actually good to make beds in, in, in winter and, and then they'll be ready by the time everything's matured and settled a bit by spring. Okay. And is, does it matter what, a, what sort of base soil you're starting with? That's a good question. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think, in my experience, that bit is often overstated. Uh, it, it's good to know what your soil is. Like, for example, is it moisture-retentive clay or is it free-draining, <laughs> chalky and sandy? Um, both of those you can grow great plants on, but with different results, it must be said. And like the one I prefer for vegetables actually is clay. Ooh. It works brilliantly with clay. Yeah, totally. Um, so, but- so good for there are local customers around here in Buckingham because we've got loads of clay. It's <laughs> some very oh, heavy soil. <laughs> well, you need to stock a nice lot of compost for them. And mushroom compost is great if you can get it. There's yeah. a bit of a shortage of supply, I think, at the moment because farmers have realized how valuable it is. But basically, yeah, you, you know, compost on clay is ideal because you've got all that moisture and nutrient retention underneath and you're not kind of fighting the clay, for want of a better word, but... The soil organisms are keeping it open and aerated for you, and you get the benefit of it while you just work or you know plant and sow into the soft surface. So with with clay, what I put on, you know, an inch a year, that's my maintenance dose. But to start out, I would look to get three or four inches, up to ten centimeters of compost on your bed, and on pathways, I would use cardboard as well to suppress the weeds. Um, thick cardboard on your pathways and then maybe a little bit of wood chip or something so that when you walk on it, you're not um, smashing the cardboard. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, looking at your, your website, your uh, pictures mm. of your, your three trial beds, which look absolutely amazing, I have to say. Oh, uh, yeah. How, how do you keep that area looking so good and, and you know, <coughs> weed free? You know, what, what's the secret? There is no secret, Chris. <laughs> it's, um, I, yeah, I, I, I can... I take it for granted now because I just got so used to it, but I can assure you that we hardly weed that area. And, it, it, yeah, it still amazes me, actually, but, but less than it used to because I just got, have got used to it. But we, once you've got soil, you know, I would say there's two things. To, so the soil is, um, the organisms are well-fed. That makes them happy. And uh, they're not disturbed, which makes them even happier. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And, and that links to the my understanding of, well, you know, why do weeds grow? Why, why do sometimes we get explosions of weeds? There's obviously the, the clear one that if lots of weed seeds blow in, which I do get here sometimes, if the sandy lands in the near, nearby fields all go to flower at the same time, then you get the wind blow the seeds over in there. We'll, we'll be pulling quite a few dandelions. That's the main weeding we do, actually, in the summer. But beyond that, there's very few... The soil doesn't need to grow weeds. It's in a very calm condition. And I can illustrate that best by... The other extreme, which I've experienced, is rotivating. And when I rotivated some ground to sow some carrots back in the 1980s, before I knew better, <laughs> and I did an acre, and I could not believe how much chickweed came up. 
And there's a saying around here that chickweed follows the rotavator. And I think the reason is, if you look at what a rotavator does, it's really smashing up the soil and breaking up the particles into tiny pieces. And that's not a natural state for soil. So it needs to bind together again. And chickweed does that brilliantly with its tough and wiry roots. So therefore, you can expect the chickweed after rotivating. You know, obviously there needs to be a few seeds there, but if they are, and that's what happened. So I actually, I lost an acre of carrots from, from that little experiment, and that taught me quite a lesson. But on no big ground, I very rarely see chickweed. And, I, you know, I think that's why. So the, it's not difficult to maintain. We spend very little time weeding this. It's, it's a it's a pleasure job, actually, because it's just that we can skim over the ground quite quickly or walk over, usually pulling a few, and, and just have a chance to look at everything else while we're doing it. But we weed little and often. I would say that's the key. So you, you never spend any long on it, but it's still worth doing every, say, 10 days in the summer, just to make sure none are going to seed and you, you catch them all. And have you, I mean, just thinking about my allotment and the fact mm. I've got mare's tail growing on it, Ooh. which <laughs> I, I, I've been propagating well for the last 10 years, <laughs> and it's right. just an absolute nightmare. I mean, I, I try yeah. and dig it out. Yeah. Does that benefit in Is the it, same it, way? Well, is it a wet spot? Are you in a damp situation? Um, it's on Northamptonshire Ironstone, so it's not actually that badly drained. It just seems to have oh, okay. a sort of good holding in the allotments around us and keeps on coming in and growing. And Yeah. I mean, it is difficult, because even if you got rid of it, it'll spread in from nearby, nearby plots, won't it? Yeah. So you, you, you're never going to get totally clear. But what I haven't got it here. I mean, I've, I've got some terrible bindweeds which we can get rid of in two years. What I find generally with perennial weeds, with no dig, they are easier to control. I think that's the best I can offer you. <laughs> so, okay. um, you know, the, the, they pull out. We we don't dig them out. We don't try and dig out the parent root, but we do keep removing the regrowth, which yeah. with the aim of being persistent enough with that, that the parent root, I call it, what deep down um, doesn't get any stronger and if anything gets weaker over time. I think that's the most realistic way of, of looking at mare's tail. I, I had a guy on a course here once, actually, who said, he said, I got rid of mare's tail in 11 years of hoeing. <laughs> but I think he was being really thorough. I and mean, it shows it can be done. He said literally he got rid of it. But it Shows was it off with lack years. of light, I suppose. And that's where, yeah, one way of... yeah, weakens it all the time. Yeah, mm. I mean, it, you, I would say your best bet is keeping on top of it. But, you know, surface mulches help. you just got to do all the, all the, everything that helps, basically. Brilliant. Okay. Well, keep on persevering. I'll tell you in ten years' time <laughs> yeah. whether I've got rid of it or not. And, and yeah, sure. <laughs> well, we've got where I've got really bad bindweed here. We we took on a plot two years ago, new new field, and it had a huge amount of bindweed roots in. And initially, I did use black plastic. And we still grew potatoes and squash, but it's much easier to control when you've got um, plastic at least suppressing some of the weed growth, and then yeah. remove the plastic. Then there's a lot of pulling out of what we could see. And uh, since then, last then that uh, was first year, and year two last year, we were regularly removing, using a trowel to lever out the new growth. And actually, by the end of the summer, it had almost disappeared. I was really pleased. Um, you know, it can be done. you just got to be vigorous. And it's um, also about doing the pathways as well as the beds. So, you know, the classic one I see sometimes on the lot, you've got to, they're doing a really nice job of keeping the cooch grass under control in the bed, but there's loads of cooch grass in the pathway, so it just keeps spreading back in. 
So that's why I was saying that, you know, get your wheat paths weed-free as well as your beds, and then you can reach this nice weed-free state. Okay. Charles, we obviously we mentioned about mulching materials, and now obviously mm. for, for gardeners, if they produce in their own compost, that's that's one obviously one uh, yeah. way of uh, bringing in the the mulch. What are the other alternatives are there for, for mulches in which you perhaps trialled at your own uh, on your own garden? Well, yeah, I would buy in some to start with. You know, if you are, especially if you want to grow really amazing vegetables, it's, it's worth it. I, you know, I call it a one-off initial investment. Mm-hmm. You don't need to buy a lot of compost every year, but if you're starting out, it can really get you off to a flying start. And I would recommend mushroom compost more than any. We've just been doing some trials here, and that one came out as, as a really good result. But green waste compost is somewhat less nutritious, and it can take longer to get mature. It's often sold in a half-mature state, and it's hygrophobic, so it won't hold water uh, for quite a few months until it really settles down. Um, so, yeah, you've got to be a bit careful. And, and another compost I've often recommended, but less so now, um, is you know animal manures, horse manure and cow manure. Particularly horse manure now, it's you know risk of this pesky weed killer, which should not be allowed. Um, Paralid weed killers, which are used by some farmers to control broadleaf weeds, and they're so persistent that if the horse can eat the hay and the hay comes out through the horse's stomach into the poo, the poo can sit in the manure heap for, for years and this stuff doesn't break down. It doesn't decompose in the manure heap. So if the horse happened to have eaten hay or grass with this stuff on, um, you can have contaminated manure and what that will do is cause problems for your peas, beans, tomatoes and potatoes in particular. They're very susceptible and if you... If any of you listening see or have seen leaves curling inward at the growing point of those plants, legumes and solanums, um, that's a sign that this stuff is in there. And the the only remedy I know is sunlight. Um, that you, you leave it on the surface, sun, sun on it will degrade this stuff over the course of probably a, a summer. Mm. Um, so, yeah, actually, one other source of fertility is, is wood chip. But that... Um, you know, you're not buying compost. Obviously, usually you're getting it delivered fresh, which is fine, and it's great mulch, as you know, for pathways and shrubs and things. But if you if you keep it for a couple of years, you, that will turn into something close to compost, and that's a pretty good source mm. of um, organic matter and fertility. Mm, yeah, excellent. So it's no dig gardening. It's not no weed gardening, really, is it? Now, with regards to weeding is your preference to sort of pick out the little shoots of weeds as you're getting up yeah. to see them or hoeing i mean as i read sort of tilling is obviously very bad for breaking up the microfauna of the surface of the soil it, what yeah. what are your thoughts on hoeing and is that yeah, still hoeing, okay well hoeing, hoeing is a very shallow thing you know i would say good hoeing you're not going more than two three centimeters and you're skimming through the surface layer. And that's linked to the other part of what you're doing when you're hoeing. We, we, here, we don't hoe much, but we do. If, you know, it's definitely good to have a hoe ready in case. Um, if you see, if you happen to have spread a compost which has got a lot of weed seeds, and it's usually in early spring, so late February through March, and yeah. preferably on a bright, breezy day, if you skim through the surface in the morning, ideally, so that everything dries by evening, and the stage at which to do it is the key thing. And the old saying 
you know, many of the old things I find really annoying, actually. <laughs> but this one's really good, and it's, um, how your weeds before you see them. And, of course, it's not literally true, but it's the, the, the kernel of it is that you're looking to uh, disturb weed, yep. germinating weed seeds, if you like, you know, almost before they're little plants. And so in early spring, there's a lot of things like grasses and fat hen and um, chickweed and goodness knows what, groundsel. They're all just making their first move. And if you can disturb them um, as even little germinated um, seeds with little roots on and get them dry before they've had a chance to grow. You, you've done a huge weeding job without hardly ever seeing a weed. And so that's what, it's called a weed strike, and that, that's something I would always recommend, and we do here, if, if I am expecting a weed problem. So in other words, I'm going out, the big difference, I'm looking for weeds. I'm not waiting to be overwhelmed by them. And, and it's okay. really good to be in that habit, be on the front foot, don't be afraid of weeds and, and, you know, just tackle them when you see them. And like you suggesting, if I see one, I'll pull it. Mm-hmm. And they pull that easily from the surface compost, uh, but I don't just leave it. And, and quite often, if I'm walking through the garden doing something completely different and I spot a weed, I will stop. I'll even put down something I'm carrying maybe and I'll pull out that weed because I've noticed how later on you might walk past it and not notice it. Uh, you know, they're good at disguising themselves. <laughs> so if I see one... <laughs> I, I, I remove it because I do want to maintain a weed-free state. That gives you peace of mind. It creates a beautiful garden, and you know that there's not any weeds going to seed. You know, you, mm-hmm. you're not building up any future problems. So even if I've got, say, a crop of onions or broccoli, and, and they're, well, the broccoli shows it's better example, the leaves are smothering the ground. You, can, you can't see the ground, you know, but I would still go and have a look between the leaves. Just make sure there's not a little groundsel there which is about to drop 100 seeds, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's about being being on top of it, but it's not onerous. Okay, Charles, you're obviously on your, your your plot there, you you do produce a lot of your own uh, own compost. Um, any tips mm. for our digit listeners on, on on home composting? Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I've noticed um, recently actually, and I'm really pleased that, that, that there seems to be more interest in in people making their mm, own compost. Most definitely. Uh, yeah, great, and, and I think it's partly because. Um, it's been made to sound too difficult. You know, I think the way the RHS have taught gardening, and I don't think I'm sort of saying any top secrets here, but, you know, it, it, it's been a bit formulaic, I feel, and, and I think they would, some of them would acknowledge that. You know, and, and, and we we need more understanding of principles. And, and with, with making compost, actually, you know, it's not too difficult. Um, once you get those key key the essence of what you're doing and, and one thing is to have a, a balance of green and brown materials so you know you're not going to just load in loads of grass mowings 100% because it'll all go soggy and you need something fibrous to go with that so that's where it's good to have you know set by in, in the winter create a stock um, of tree leaves woody prunings anything of that nature uh, even paper and bits of cardboard which you can use in through the summer to add to the volume of green which you have through the summer months. In the summer months, you have more green material. In the winter months, you have more brown. In the ideal world, you know, we'd be mixing them up. But it's, so you've got to do that thing of keeping the brown ready for the green. So balancing your mix, it's not scientific measurements. <laughs> it's, it's a rough proportion um, and practice. You know, you're, it's difficult to give precision Measurements just because every garden is different, and as a result, every compost is different, which is wonderful. There's one um, thing that makes a big difference, and it's misunderstood, I've noticed, is about keeping in the moisture and warmth. Uh, 
I think it was Shaw Cooper who who originally said have compost heaps with flatted sides. He was up in your part of the world, was he? Hartley Manor? Was that anywhere? Or was that Hertfordshire? No, I think that was Hertfordshire. I think, yeah, he's Hertfordshire, if I remember. He ran something called the Good Gardeners Association in the 1950s. He wrote 37 gardening books, so I've oh, got wow. a way to go yet. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, you know, he's an amazing guy. But he, he was on TV and he said something like, you know, oh, have your flatted size to your heat so the air can flow through your compost heap. And it kind of makes sense. But if you think about it, it doesn't actually, because you don't want air flowing through a compost heap. It'll take out all the heat and some of the moisture. You want to enclose your site and have, we actually line pallet-sided compost heaps because pallets are brilliant um, improvisation, you know, to make a... It's a good four, structure, four isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I just use eight wires. So two wires, top, wire top and bottom on each corner. So it's a no post. It's literally four pallets, eight wires, eight pieces of wire, job done. And it's on sitting on the ground, and we'll actually put a bit of cardboard around on the ground around it, just to stop weeds like coots or nettles and anything pushing up into the compost. But it's sitting on the ground on weeds even, and then you're just piling stuff on top of that and filling, filling. But we line the sides with cardboard. So on the inside of the pallet, as as the ingredients are added, um, you just pack in a bit more cardboard so that you've always got a cardboard layer between what you're adding and the outside, and that holds the warmth closer to the heat and the moisture. I found that that, you know, I'm telling you this from experience, it's not just some idea. It, it's made a notable difference since we've done that, and we're, we're just making amazing compost from, from these very simple pallet-sized heaps, which usually we find we can finish in two months. If you, the quicker you finish them, the hotter they get, and, and the quicker you'll make your compost, basically. But if it takes you a whole year to finish heat, well, that's also fine. It just will take longer, and you probably won't need to turn it because it'll be mature at the bottom before, um, you know, <laughs> when you get to the top sort of thing. Um, we, I find that we turn our heaps just once, uh, no more, just one turn, because it makes a noticeable difference. So if you don't turn, fair enough, but if you do manage to turn a heap, which just means moving it from one place to another, you know, have an empty day next door, um, we, we get just really almost a potting compost actually within about um, six to eight months so that's with making a heat in two months a pallet size heat and that means that actually that's quite a lot of material and even on an allotment I think you struggle to fill such a heat in two months unless you bring in quite a lot of raw material from elsewhere which is actually I'd recommend <laughs> you know to make enough compost you need to scrounge so coffee grounds from local cafes and a bit of old wood chip, preferably the old wood chip, not the new, um, just because that's a bit of woody structure that gives quality to the heap, a bit of paper, a bit of cardboard, um, you know, go and mow someone else's grass or, or whatever, you know, just always be on the lookout for, for whatever extra materials you can add. And it's fun. It's it really, you know, you're doing something really productive, you're using waste material to make something valuable. So if you haven't tried it yet, I don't want anyone to have a go. Um, if you're a very small garden, those Dalek things that you probably sell, I mean, they, they make actually, I think, really good compost, and they're very convenient and easy. We just pile stuff in. But again, the same mix, so it's not too much soggy. But don't forget to put in some wooden material, a bit of cardboard and paper, as well as um, the green leaves and the weeds and everything. Mm. And so having read your website, you, you know, you've obviously done some trials of like green manure compost and the cow manure compost. And <laughs> yeah. I might be wrong, but uh, your cow manure compost, it, 
looks to me to be yielding a very slightly higher sort of yield than the green green manures. Um, is there a secret recipe? I mean, what, are you just chucking a few cow pats on the compost heap every now and again, or what, what's the? <laughs> what are you doing? How how are you making? Yeah, the... I I would say no secret really, but but just getting that mix, the balance right, mm. so that the compost um, turns out good. I've, probably one thing actually, which I haven't mentioned, is keeping off the rain once it's mature or finished. Uh, it's, it's actually often not practical to to cover a heat while you're you're adding. It keeps the yeah, nutrients we, we, in, doesn't it? Well, yeah, more than that though, it's it's, it's keeping the air in because rain water displaces air, and yep. and air is such an important part of a compost heap. It's not the air that's flowing in the side, as I mentioned. <laughs> the air in there is is held in there by the the fibrous structure of materials you add. You know that's why you need to have enough. Slightly woody bits, not logs, but you know, just twigs, that kind of stuff, uh, and that that holds the air in. But if you have too much rain on it all the time, it tends to settle, and then it becomes anaerobic and smelly, and that's when it stops decomposing and loses quality. So, maintaining air in your compost sheets, and that's where one turn actually can help. Uh, so, yeah, keep a cover on once you've finished any heat. Um, if it's raining a lot, it can be worth trying to cover it. Actually, even you know, in between adding, uh, work out what you can. And um, I do add a little bit of rock dust, actually, and, and a little bit of charcoal. Not always, but I think that can help um, the quality of the compost and the final result and how plants grow. Excellent. And it, with regards to the sort of nutrient levels, obviously, you know, mm. charcoal's obviously very good at creating, mm. isn't it, sort of water retention and space in the... Yeah, keeping it sweet as well, doesn't it? Adding a bit of sweetness to the... Uh, do you add any things like yeah. wood ash or sort of anything to help the sort of phosphates or the nitrates or the potassium levels? Yeah, well, I can tell from your question, I find that very interesting, actually. I would say you're more classically trained in terms of feeding plants than I am. I tend not <laughs> to think in those terms right? Uh, because my understanding is, and, and what I see happening, is that particularly with no dig, because you're leaving the soil biology, to flourish, those mycorrhizal networks in, in, in the soil help roots to find nutrients which are already there, but which would be more difficult for the plant to access if after cultivation. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I'm probably, if anyone measured it, I'm putting on less nutrients <laughs> than the plants are taking out, because soil is always making more, you know, rocks are breaking down, that kind of thing. Yep. And there's a lot in soil, and there's a lovely soil biologist in, in the USA called Elaine Ingham, a professor, who um, coined the phrase soil food web. And uh, I was at a lecture she gave once, and she said, there's no soil in the world that does not already have enough nutrients for plant growth. And I said, wow, that's an amazing statement. Mm. Uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of thinking. Um, it's, it's enabling plants to find what's already there. So I'm, okay. I'm not working in that way so consciously. But I'm certainly not averse to putting in some wood ash, for example, uh, because I do feel that there is potash in there, totally correct, and they're great. And, and the, I feel the compost heap locks it in better than spreading it on the ground where it might um, leach through. Because, you know, that, that for me is the other wonderful thing about compost is how the nutrients that are in there are held in water in soluble form. They don't wash out by, with rain. So we put compost on usually before Christmas, actually, and then it's with soils covered through the winter, it, the lumps break down in winter and it's ready to go in the spring. But it means all the winter rain has, has washed through, 
like a lot this year. <laughs> and yet, you know, every year the garden just abundant. And and to me, that's saying, well, no, it's not. It's not water soluble nutrients we're putting on here. It's it's, it's long term fertility, and you you're distilling it all the time through the network of cell biases. Yeah, Charles, can we just move over to to seeds and? Um, Many of the seed, commercial seed growers advocate using fresh seeds every year to obviously avoid problems. But you've already in, in indicated that you, you like to save your, your uh, seed potatoes. Um, do, what, any tips on, on saving your own seed and then growing it? Have you? Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got more and more into it over the years. Um, it, it's, it's a bit of a specialist thing. You know, I, I would say if you're going to save seeds of vegetables in particular, you know, pay attention, do some homework, and make sure you know what you're doing. <laughs> it's not a random thing. So just the thing about um, selecting seed from, you know, the, the best plant, basically. Just don't keep it from the weakest plant. But also know which vegetables you need more than one of. So, for example, there's, there's just four vegetables you can easily save seed from one plant only, and that's pea, lettuce, French bean, and tomato. All the other vegetables you need to have, like half a dozen, even ten, like 10 beetroots growing together uh, for the cross-pollination, which means you get a stronger gene pool and you don't get inbreeding. So as long as you do that, uh, which does mean more space, uh, that's something about seed saving. It takes up a certain amount of space. Um, seeding plants grow grow bigger than the, the, the original vegetable. And then um, just make sure you're on hand and, and know when you need to look out for the right seed to catch it before it falls on the ground. All, all those kinds of things. It's, it's something that needs attention. But... When you get it right, the results can be amazing. And I did it last year for the first time with beetroot, actually. I've never saved beetroot seed before. And mm-hmm. um, when I sowed it last February, um, we transplanted late March. And by late May, it was a warm spring. But we were harvesting amazing beetroot. I was so pleased and, and delighted. Gosh, I excellent. I hardly quite believe it. But you don't always get a success like that. But when it comes off, it's brilliant. And one thing that got me into it was how seed quality... Um, is, has gone down um, of a lot of the old traditional vegetables. You know, things like Eastern special Brussels sprout, you know, is it actually that special anymore? <laughs> I don't think it's been well looked after, and that's because the seed companies make better money from F1 hybrids, so they look after them more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, anyone who's, I say, you know, heirloom heritage, be careful. It's not necessarily good just because it's full black. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And the Obviously, the the other side of that coin is if you're not rotating the ground possibly and the seeds are getting inbred, you can end up with some sort of quite serious diseases. So you haven't come across that yet or had any problems with that, I take no, it. No, not at all. Um, yeah, really not, actually. Well, <laughs> I mean, at I mean, the end of the day, if, if you're following a decent regime, then there's no reason why you should because you're outbreeding the, and looking for strengths in in plants by you know, selecting yeah. a good gene pool. So hopefully well, you should exactly. be improving the, the Evesham special rather than it <laughs> becoming flavourless right. and uh, yeah. what have you. But, uh, no, that, that's brilliant. That's very much my thought. And, you know, the other thing is when you save your own seed, you are, you're you basically keeping something that's used to where it's growing. So it's, it's adapted to the climate, the soil, the conditions. And yep. that's, that's a definitely a strong point, whatever else you will do. No, without a doubt, without a doubt. Anyway, all I can say is it's just an interesting observation we made only just recently. We were selecting potatoes for seed, and I had two varieties. One was Nicola. Last year, I thought, I'll try a new variety, and I bought some Nicola seed. Yep. And then at the same time, alongside it, we were growing the, the home-saved 
um, Charlotte from Homestay Seeds. And which variety had the disease? It was Nicola. There's some kind of ring spot virus on it. And we also had blackleg. And that was from, must have come from the seeds that I bought in. Yep. You know, that, that but blackleg is a bacterial disease, isn't it? That mm. is grown in, but it is found in weak, yeah. weak seed potatoes. So yeah. that's where they well, say Well, I've only ever of... seen it from, from you, I get it on odd plants. It's clearly come with the seed because otherwise, why would yeah. it be there? Mm. Um, yeah, that, it's very striking. So, you know, all the time, it's so, so interesting making observations like this. And I, yeah, I'm really in favor of home sow seeds, but, but do it well, you know. Mm. It's not random. Charles, on, on Dig It, we, we often talk about global warming and obviously climate change impacting on the way we garden and our gardens. Um, how do you feel your no-dig philosophy will sit as the changes of our climate become obviously ever more apparent? Well, it's a winner. <laughs> it's an absolute winner because, you know, no-dig ticks, ticks so many nice boxes. You, you get better moisture retention, so mm-hmm. in a hot, dry summer, uh, it, you've got less watering to do and also we noticed with the dig no dig trial the watering is easier because you're putting water onto the surface compost and it just soaks in really easily and then if you get a heavy storm it doesn't run off it soaks in and then the drainage is, is excellent as well so I find you know really wet weather the, the garden doesn't get soggy it's pretty heavy soil here it's a heavy salt over clay mm-hmm. uh, but we don't have any problem we can get on the ground at any time of year because uh, the mud doesn't stick to your boots because you haven't disturbed the soil. I was giving a talk once in Scotland near Perth, and this guy came up at the end and he said, he said, I'm a farmer. He said, oh. it's always raining up here. And he said, I really like my no-dig vegetable garden because I don't get mud on my boots. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I just thought that's, that's a really nice little bonus. Of, of, um, and, and so, yeah, I, I was still very confident, actually, that, that it's the way to go from this point of view, among many others. Have you noticed any sort of changes in times of years when you're sowing your seeds in well, the last, say, 30, 40 years? Well, not many, particularly frost tender plants, because we certainly still get those late frosts we had. You remember during that lockdown spring, and it was a really warm April, and then we had mm. those icy nights, two or three. We had minus two here on May the 14th. And, mm. you know, although we'd had this amazing warm spring before, that meant that any courgette, tomato, sweet corn, they were gone. So generally, for, for warmth-loving plants, I'm sticking to the timetable, but I'm maybe sowing a little bit earlier things like onions, lettuce, spinach, um, beetroot, which um, don't get killed by frost, but will can benefit from the slightly earlier warmth. So the winters have been more open, but then, you know, we had that, my, we had minus nine centigrade here in December this, last year, 2022, mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, that did some damage. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, okay, so it's maybe a little warmer, but you've still got extremes. I I would urge anyone not, not to vary too much from, you know, the pattern that we've got used to following the, the dates that are the best ones. Excellent. And I, I read recently you've got three beehives now on your land. <laughs> yeah. Is that, did that make an increase in your yields last year, do you think? Uh, not really, because I suppose most of what I'm growing, it's not like I'm not growing sunflowers or, or almonds or, <laughs> you know, it's these vegetables which are not really flowering much. And, and tomatoes and, and, and beans, I, I guess the insects and wild bees actually do a fantastic job. I see a lot of bumblebees here uh, okay. and on the dahlias as well. Mm. So, yeah, it, it's not, hasn't made a huge difference in, in the garden, but we do see a lot of honeybees and um, it's very nice to have a bit of honey. We didn't get a huge amount, but it's really tasty. <laughs> How are you getting on with them? Are you enjoying it? 
Well, uh, to be honest, I don't really do it. I I go up to the hives a couple of times a year. I, mean, I probably shouldn't say that, but I I, I work with a, a company called Black Bee, and, and okay. they do most of the work on on looking after the hives. So, are they trying to breed the native black bee then? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we have got they're called Buckland Buckfast bees. Buckfast bees, yeah. Um, are you a beekeeper? It sounds like you might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've been doing it for about, um, I would say, eight or nine years now. It's ah, a, brilliant. I, I love it. It's a fun, it's sort of one yeah. of those hobbies that you think, why on earth am I looking after a whole load of insects that will sting <laughs> me? But they they have so many good properties that you, you can't um, I do anything. I couldn't agree more. And um, you, uh, you always meet beekeepers, well, like gardeners, really, they're nearly always happy people. <laughs> yeah. Good vibes. Definitely. Thank you. <laughs> So we like to put our expert guests on the spot. So if you were ever stranded on that desert island, which plant or perhaps piece of gardening equipment would you like to be stranded with and, and perhaps why? <laughs> okay. My plant would be garlic. Okay. Because I, yeah, I really value it for health. Mm. Um, I eat a bit of raw garlic every morning and I think it's a fantastic um, okay. way of maintaining a good healthy body. And my uh, tool... Uh, I think it would either be a trowel or a wooden dibber. <laughs> um, I've got my long handled wooden dibber, and I find it's so useful. You, you you can do a bit of weeding with it, and you can make a hole to pop in plants. Um, uh, yeah, I'd have a bit of fun with that one. I think <laughs> something different. <laughs> Good stuff. So, Charles, finally, how do our Digit listeners find out more about you, your Digit channels, and your books? It's ten books oh, so far. Yeah. Thanks. Well. Yeah, I mean, I brought out a lot of books recently. The, um, on, on my website, there's, there's a, a, a web page that has a um, description of all the books I've written. I mm. recommend just having a browse around my website, actually. There's a lot of information there about No Dig and what, how you can do it. And, um, yeah, stuff you can buy if you want to find out more, like the books, and, and also links to videos that you can watch on YouTube. I've got a big YouTube channel. You can find me on Instagram as well, where there's a lot of gardeners, so there's often good conversations as well. And Twitter I'm on, and Facebook. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's plenty of access to, to what I'm up to. And I, I, I guess I can give talks, um, giving a talk at Derby Book Festival, for example, in May this year. And, and yeah, keep an eye on my website events page, because that's got all those um, things that are coming up. Right, we'll, Charles, we'll make sure all your, your links go on to our, uh, our show page uh, on the, the, the podcast website. So, But Great, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for this, this afternoon of, of Don't Dig Gardening. It's been really engaging and, and, and absolutely fascinating. And I think you've got probably two new converts. Mm, definitely. Well, I'm, I think I might have to go and dig some compost up from the garden centre and take it home and chuck it on the allotment. Start there, uh, I think. Uh, well, no, I'm, I'm honoured. It's been nice talking to you. Yeah, Charles, thank you very much for your time. Okay, cheers. Thank you. Thanks. Today's show was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Chris Day and Peter Brown. The show was produced by Peter Brown. And our thanks to Chilton Music Therapy for providing the music. Thanks for listening. At Chilton Music Therapy, we want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives. From parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk